right, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to do the Old Testament again, then the New Testament. But we're not going to jump all over where we were in the Old Testament. We're going to focus first on the Genesis, finishing up Genesis. Those of you that have been on schedule reading, congratulations. You have finished one out of the 66 books, right? <laughs> so you're one sixty-six through. You've finished more than that, but it's one of the longest books, which is good, right? You, the good thing is you'll get to the, the minor prophets. Uh, we'll get to those towards the end of the year, and you'll be going through a book a day, every two days a book. So you'll be going through those quickly. These first five take a long time. and so But we'll, we're through Genesis. So let's talk about the last part of Genesis. So uh, that's Genesis 42 is where we started all the way through Genesis 50. Um, we're going to talk about that for a minute, let you ask some questions, and I'm going to do kind of a summary of the book of Genesis for you. Uh, so 50 chapters of Genesis and four little nuggets, and then we're going to move on to Exodus. Okay, If we don't get to some of Exodus this week, we can do that next week because we'll be in Exodus for a little while. Uh, but let's start with the book of Genesis, chapter 42 through 50. So we get to Joseph and his brothers come back. Tell me uh, something you noticed maybe for the first time or something that stuck out to you or something that meant something to you. Uh, before we get to questions, tell me that kind of stuff. One of the things that I always forget until I go back and read through this is, is that whole adoption of Joseph's sons that the grandfather does and then that cross-blessing that happens and it's like Jacob is Jacob until the end, right? He just is. And so, yeah, there's that point where the Pharaoh and Jacob, you know, just out of mutual admiration, they have that discussion and interesting. Other things. Yeah, Marilyn's talking about that part at the end where he blesses and he tells their future, right? And it's, uh, you know, the people of... Uh, the people that would have come along and read the Jewish history that would have been in those tribes would have gone, that's just like Dad. That is the Dan people right there. That's what's happened. You know, I mean, they would have known that this prophecy that he speaks is not so much a blessing as it is a prediction, right? It's kind of an interesting little side note there, and especially the way that he goes overboard in his praise of Joseph, Right? Joseph is the only character in Scripture that has an extended story that nothing bad is said about Joseph, except for Jesus. Every other character in Scripture that has an extended story. I mean, we've obviously seen that in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You think about David, there are parts there, Samson, Solomon, you have all these extended stories. Paul, even before he became a Christian, there were those times he murdered people, that little small detail. You know, all these people, something bad is said except for Joseph. And a lot of people will claim that, that biblical scholars will talk about types. That's that people that point towards something else and will say Joseph is the one that points toward Jesus. Joseph and David are often the ones that point that direction, all right? Other stuff from the book of Genesis, this last part, or in a whole, something that you saw, uh, maybe he hadn't seen before so long ago, right? You especially get that sense with Reuben. Even though Reuben was the one that wouldn't have done it. I mean, he, he seems to be kind of the, but you just sense that, 
we, we cannot let ben, something happen to Benjamin. I mean, you can imagine that uh, one of the things that I thought about is, as you read this story, you, can, you, know, you naturally protect the baby brother. But to think about how much they must have protected Reuben, I mean, they must have protected Benjamin after Joseph was gone. It's just amazing because of that fear that you're talking about, Bill, that they lived in. Yes, Brenda. Yeah, you slept with my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God hits straight licks with crooked sticks, right? <laughs> and part of that comes to something I'll mention in a minute. Brenda, those that didn't hear a couple of things there, was, was Reuben wasn't completely upright. He had that little issue with uh, his dad's wife. Um, but then also, little issue, right? <laughs> uh, but then there's also this this uh, question of why did the, the Israelites, when you hear them in, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why didn't they include Joseph in that? Well, part of that is because the nation of Israel was composed of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes were the direct descendants of Jacob. And so they would have understood that they were all going back to Jacob. And so to, to carry it and talk about Joseph would not have extended the tribal understanding of the Israelites. Okay? And so Joseph is left off there. Now, rightfully so, Joseph is the most upstanding of the four. But it was just kind of the, Abraham started it. It carried through Isaac and Jacob. And then it split off into the 12 tribes. So that's, that's my reason. I don't know if that's the real reason, but that's why I would imagine as they're sitting around the campfire, all of the, no matter what tribe you were in, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were your forefathers. Yes, Miss Carolyn. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not, Miss Carolyn, I've had two or three people. Miss Carolyn said that, that, that until this week she didn't realize why when you get to Exodus the people are in bondage and in slavery and how they got to Egypt. I've had two or three people tell me that when you read it, and part of that is the way we read the Bible and the way, just to be honest, preachers preach. Because preachers don't usually preach a series on Genesis and they go immediately into Exodus. You just preach Genesis and then you'll go preach Matthew and then you'll come back and preach Exodus, but you might not, you know, you jump into the Moses story and the baby in the bushes. You know, you don't go back and say, oh, by the way, here's how we got here. And so to see that linkage between the two, you understand. And that God, you know, what's interesting is that you see in this two things. One is that God used a terrible situation to bring good. But then the good situation ended up being a terrible situation again. Uh, you know, Joseph rises and he saves his entire family because of his work. But then, hundreds of years later, somebody rises up and goes, Joseph, I don't know. Joseph, what are all these people doing in our land? They need to start working for us. So it is interesting to see those connections. And, you, and the Pentateuch especially, the Pentateuch's the first five books of the Bible, are a connected story. I mean, when you get through Genesis, Genesis is the beginning, obviously beginning, and then you get to Exodus. Well, Leviticus is the telling of the law that Moses got. Um, numbers is getting all that kind of together, some, getting some history in there, but also counting the people. And then Deuteronomy is the second law. Dudo 
Deuteros, second, nomos, law. Deuteronomy is the second law. And so it's just retelling some of the things. So those five books tell a story. And then once you get through with those, the story continues. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and all of that. But it's an interesting correlation. Other questions you have about the Genesis before we move to Exodus? Yes, Gary. You were sitting down front. I knew you had something on your mind. It doesn't really talk much about Joseph's family, which is interesting. Gary asked when Joseph got married. It just kind of suddenly tells us that it happened. I mean, the assumption is that it happened in Egypt. Uh, but who knows, you know. Pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh's daughter, I mean, Pharaoh gave him part, part of that. Um, you know, Joseph was probably 16 or 17 when he came to Egypt. And so he wouldn't have been married by then. Most Jewish men, now, that cha- some of that's dependent on the age. Uh, somebody today asked me uh, how much stuff had stopped working, basically, by the time they got to 850 years old, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> what was left. But so some of that depends on how long it is, you know, and we talked about, you know, first week, uh, Rick, about what age did they start having kids, but... You know, most Jewish men didn't marry till they were till they were a little older, um, mid twenties or so. Which is why, when you get to the New Testament, most people think Joseph was probably in his late twenties and Mary was probably in her mid teens. That's kind of how it happened. Uh, older kind of guys waited a little longer, and women they were trying to get them married as quickly as they could. It doesn't give us a good explanation of Joseph's family. I mean, Joseph is, which is different than I mean, it gives us some. It tells us some, but it doesn't give us. Even the whole Pharaoh thing and what he gave, it just kind of matter-of-factly states it, um, that it's there. Yeah, yeah. And Joseph would have had some Egyptian, yeah, relationships. Women have come a long way, Miss Betty. Yes, they have. When he started his family, 30 years old, yeah, in the court serving for Pharaoh. Yes, Charles. That That is Joseph's story in a verse. Yeah, it's also... Uh, Almost, uh, Charles said that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, is a great sermon illustration. It's a great life lesson. That you, you know, his brothers come and his brothers are still worried to death that something's going to happen. Jacob died, now he's going to get us. You know, I mean, you would think through all this they would finally figure out he's not, but Jacob died, now he's going to get us. And it says that he reassures his brothers and he tells them in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so it's a great verse to think about. When other people mean harm, God can turn that into good. Romans eight twenty eight. For, you know, God works together all things for good for those who love him are called according to your purpose. It doesn't say that everything that, God, that happens in your life is good. It's that God can work all things for good if you allow him. All right? Yes, Marilyn asked, why the use of the name Jacob and Israel and interchanging? I don't know. There, there are theories out there that I don't like that say that there are two or three different writers out there doing stuff. But I, I think that it, it's too consistent everywhere else. I think it's just that people knew him as Jacob and Israel. Uh, you know, that God changed his name, but that that's, you know, Israel was almost like a nickname in some ways. And Jacob was what he was known by, and so... You know, people sometimes will refer to me, and, you know, hopefully most of the time it's good, but they call me names other than Lyle Larson, right? Uh, so, 
All right, any other questions out of Genesis before we move to Exodus? All right, let me give you four things that I think we can learn from Genesis. I'll try to do this at the end of books. When we get to the end of a book, give you just kind of a summary thing that we've learned. Okay, do it quickly. It's not going to be like a sermon, just four points. First of all, it's not like a sermon, just four points. That makes it sound like I got eight for a sermon. I'm not going to elaborate, all right? First of all, God's people are made of clay. Okay, what do I mean by that? You see, obviously, in Genesis that God uses imperfect people, right? He does. There are times when I'm at fault, you that are Sunday school teachers are at fault, we are at fault of making the people in the Bible better than they are, okay? And that makes it seem like an unattainable level of spirituality. And the truth is, you read this, it's hard to see much good in some of these people. All right? So understand that. God's people are made of clay. The second part of that is, and because of that, they are completely dependent on His grace. It is what God does through them, not what they do, that is important. Even Joseph, who never anything bad is said, if you notice, one of the things that happens is continually he talks about how God has placed him here, how God put him there, how God can help him interpret dreams, that Pharaoh had all these people couldn't interpret dreams, and he says, well, God will tell me what your dream means. That will be a theme throughout Scripture, but it's God's grace that does it. You see that God's people aren't all alike. They're different from beginning of Genesis to the end. There are different people with different kind of attitudes, different kind of talk. They're different. And then the last thing is this, that God's people are always on a journey. You get this sense that Genesis is setting the scene and that God's people are constantly on a journey. All right? Exodus. Talk about things that you noticed in Exodus or things that stood out to you. Questions, you can bring those too to kind of get started. Yes, Miss Joan. Exodus 4. What part of Exodus 4? When God comes to kill Moses? That part? Okay. <laughs> How many of you didn't remember that part? Let me see. Yeah, that's not in the Ten Commandments movie. They don't show that with Charlton Heston, right? Here's what most scholars think, and this is what I kind of tend to believe. Miss Jones asking about that strange scene in Exodus 4. Moses is preparing to go back and rescue God's people. That is going to require complete obedience to do what God has asked. And yet Moses has not been completely obedient. God had instructed them as Hebrews, when you have a child, you circumcise. And it looks like that God, that, that Moses circumcised um, Gershon, but he didn't circumcise Eliezer. Here's what people think may have happened is that Zipporah saw it. Now, by the way, aren't those three good names? We did not even consider those for our little girl, but we did not consider Zipporah, all right? That Zipporah saw the first circumcision and said, that ain't happening again. We're not, we're not doing that. And Moses said, okay, the firstborn is, that's fine, okay? Uh, which is understandable, 
Circumcision today is not a pleasant thing to watch your child having gone through, much less with the primitive methods. That's why I think that when God comes to kill Moses, Zipporah is the one that circumcises the boy. Jumps up, almost gets this feeling that she realizes what's happened. She jumps up, does a circumcision, and then the laying of the skin and saying that now we're all obedient to God, a part of God's family, set apart as his people as we've been commanded to be. That's what the implication is. It is a picture of a couple of things. That is complete preparation before you do the major work of God in your life. And that you have to be holy before God uses you in a major way. Even in Genesis, when we saw all those guys doing all that crazy stuff, before God used them a lot of times, you would see that being exposed, confessed, and then they move on. And here you have Moses' family making sure that they're prepared and right before God. Yeah, but th- th- most people think he's still, you know, I mean, there was still contact with his people. I mean, when it comes to the, where they're mistreating the Israelite and he kills the Egyptian, he's, the sense is he's standing up for his people that he knows he's a part of. You know, you also, I mean, you've got this whole scene where, uh, don't you love uh, the girl that comes in and goes, hi, would you like for me to find someone, one of the Hebrew women to help nurse? Would that be good for you? And takes it right back to Moses' mom, you know. Just you, I appreciate her gumption there to go and say, hey, can we do that? And so there's this idea that that connection was made and that even though he was a part of Pharaoh's palace, that Pharaoh's daughter allowed him to... He had dual education, really. He had education in the Egyptian courts and probably just from the oral tradition of the Hebrew people. He... he yeah. Yeah, Carol's asking about, yeah, Moses knew, you, you get the sense that Moses knew who his family was, that he was a part of these people before the exile, during the exile, after the exile, all that of his time in the wilderness. So, Miss Shirley, I see that hand back there. Well, I'm, I think that there was an ongoing relationship. I mean, the beginning of, of Genesis makes it clear that once he was weaned, that that, that, that everyday relationship wasn't there. But I... I my and this is a little speculation on my part about when Moses learned all this stuff. I think that Pharaoh's daughter continued to give her access to Moses. So you can come in. And I don't know. I don't know if that meant that she was a servant for her. I don't know if that meant she helped her in the courts. I don't know if that meant that on. I don't know. But you just get the sense that Moses had a real sense of who his family was and where he came from. Other questions in these first opening chapters of Exodus? Yes, Miss Teresa. Miss Teresa's talking about where Moses tries to get out of this every way possible, right? You see that in chapter 4, um, and and God still uses him. It's just that you see God's grace again. There's nothing... I, I don't think Moses was being overly humble. I don't think he was a good speaker. I don't think he was very important. He says, I'm nobody. I, I don't think... I don't think he thought, well, I'll try to downplay who I am. I think that's who he was. And that God says, I'm going to use you 
anyways. I mean, you look at what Moses says and think about in your life if you've ever said these kind of things in your own life about how God could use you. One, he says, I'm nobody. Why would God, why would you want to use me? I'm, not, I'm nothing. Then he says, I don't even know you very well. I mean, he says, who are you? Tell me your name. I don't know you very well. People sometimes will use that as an excuse. I don't know enough about the Bible, enough, enough about God. I don't know enough of the answers to be used. Then he says, well, the, the people at church aren't going to believe me. I'm going to go back there, and they're going to say, well, we know who you are. We know where you're from. We know what you did. God's not going to use you. Now, he says that when I go to the elders, what am I supposed to tell them? All right? Then he says, I can't get up in front of people and talk. None of y'all have ever used that, have you? No, surely not. Now I can't get. I, now I can talk to somebody if I'm just talking to them, but getting up front, I can't do that. Then he just finally says, "God, somebody else would be better. I'm not questioning you, but I am. Somebody else would just be better than me, right? So it's this interesting interplay, and yet God still says, "I'm going to use you." Now we haven't gotten all the way over to where God starts really using him and, and taking him back to Pharaoh. We got the initial discussion in the reading for today of him with Pharaoh, but it's amazing to see how this man, when you look at chapter 4, if you didn't know the rest of the story, there's no way you would think that this man would become one of the top two leaders in the history of the nation of Israel. A guy that was so nervous, he had to have his brother come and talk for him. I think it's legitimate doubt. I, I I think there was maybe some fear about, you know, what about what happens when I go back? But I don't think that he was being, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, now I don't think he wanted to do it. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think Moses wanted to do what God was asking him to do, but these were the reasons he didn't want to do them. <laughs> and Rick, it seems fun on this side, all right? If I brought you up right now and I said, Rick said that Moses got to do all the fun stuff with the staff. If I brought you up right now and said, look, Rick, this is my staff. Threw it on it. It's a snake. All right, Rick, pick that up. Is that fun stuff, Rick? <laughs> All right, Rick, stick your hand in your coat. When you pull it out, it's going to be filled with leprosy. Is that good? It's fun because we know the end, right? When, when when he did it, I don't know that it was fun, you know. And when you, we'll see when he gets in the courts, the amazing thing is not turning his rod into a snake. It's picking up the snake, turning it back into a rod. All y'all would love that, right? <laughs> yes, Brenda. Yeah, Brenda asked about God saying he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and that's going to be a recurrent theme, okay? A couple of things on that. First of all, you see in the Psalms, you see throughout the Old Testament, it's very clear, God maneuvers the hearts of leaders. He hardens them, he softens them, he gives them... Uh, he will use them for his purposes. And it just shows God's sovereignty. Okay? One of the reasons that I think God hardened Pharaoh's heart was to make the victory bigger. If Moses walked in and said, I want the people to go, and Pharaoh said, oh, okay. That's not God demonstrating his power. But when he walks in and the first thing Pharaoh says is, why in the world should I obey your God? which is the first thing Pharaoh really questions. What, what does it matter to me what he's asking? It's your God. It's not my God. He ain't going to do nothing to me. 
Because Pharaoh really thought God couldn't do anything to him. He's Pharaoh. He is God-like. And the Egyptian gods were greater than the Hebrew gods, or the Hebrews wouldn't be slaves. And so God, what you'll see in the plagues, and we'll go over this next week because we'll be in the plagues, is each plague was a, a direct attack against an Egyptian god. And so each time it was like, God is bigger than your God. God is bigger than your God. And all that wouldn't have happened without Pharaoh's hardened heart. Now, does Pharaoh in the midst of that seem to be at a disadvantage? Yeah. But it wasn't like he was following God to start with. Right? He was an enemy of God. And God used him in that way. Ms. Dottie. I think it strengthened... I do think Miss Dottie asked if it strengthened Moses' faith. I do think it was for the. I think it was to show the Egyptian who's boss, but I think it was also to show the Israelites who's boss, which they don't really get. After each of the plagues, it's almost like Pharaoh is trembling, and the Israelites are just mad. They're making Pharaoh mad, right? You had that part where Moses goes, and the Pharaoh goes, "I'm going to make the work harder," and the guys come to Moses, and like they will from now till we get to the end of Moses. And say, why in the world did you make us do that? Don't, don't you know what you're saying? You've only made him mad. I wish you wouldn't have said anything. I wish you wouldn't have brought us out in the wilderness. I wish you wouldn't have got us to the Red Sea. I wish you wouldn't have told us those commandments. I wish we would have gotten something besides bread. Complainers, grumblers. Glad none of those are ever around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I do think that there is definitely lessons for the Israelites. But I think that we miss the picture sometimes when we don't see that God's showing off a little bit for the greater world. Because Egypt at that time was it. And these little band, now there are a lot of people, but they were weak people, go in and just defy the gods of Egypt. All right? Tom, you're not allowed to ask any questions. Somebody else? No, okay, you make comment. Go ahead, Tom. You add, you go. And that's why when you start here in in the Exodus account, Tom mentioned that it's really between the gods. It's really a spiritual warfare. Okay? And what you see is from now through the conquest and after is spiritual warfare as the Israelites encounter God after God after God. And that's why God says at times, go wipe them out. Wipe out their gods. Do away with it. If you leave them around, they're going to infiltrate. All right, we're going to take the whole time in Old Testament. That's all right. Go, Miss Joan. Yeah, I, you know, that that's an interesting question. I, I think part of it is I would still think that Moses is being led by the Lord there to, to give Pharaoh that little taste of what's happening. And Moses and Aaron, you know, and a little speculation here, feel that we're kind of testing him out here to see if he'll let us just go three days. Then we'll, then we'll say, well, you know what our God says? We've got to go more than that. We've got to go. It doesn't get anywhere because Pharaoh says, I'm not even letting you go three days. You know? All right. If we got any other Exodus questions, we'll get them next week. Let's go to Matthew. All right? Matthew chapter 13. We finished last week in the midst of some of the discussion of the kingdom parables. And we pick up with one of those right at the beginning. So stuff you saw there this week, starting in verse 47 of chapter 13. And going all the way through chapter 18, verse 20. Stuff that you saw stood out to you, things that you liked, questions you have, all that. 
Yes, Miss Teresa. Miss Teresa is asking in chapter 16, verse 13 and following, there's that whole description of the who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, others, prophets. Who do you say that I am? Those are the two questions that, that, that are important for everyone to answer. Uh, the second one is the most important one that, that determines your eternity when Jesus looks at you and says, Who do you say that I am? And then it says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it's not revealed to you by man but by my Father. I tell that you are Peter. Um, Simon becomes Peter, and that's a lot's been made that that is Petra, big rock, solid rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There are lots of different interpretations of that. There are two main ones. One is that he is saying he is building his church on Peter. That on Peter I'm building my church. And that leads to what? Catholicism, right? They trace uh, the line of the Pope all the way back to Peter and say that Peter was the first Pope, if you will, and that Jesus literally built his church on the person. And that's why it's such an important thing when they have a new pope because they're electing the next in the line of Peter that the church is built on. Okay, The other real interpretation is that he is building his church on the declaration that Peter made. Not on Peter, but on the fact that Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that everything in the church will be built on that. Now, Here's something interesting to discuss. When we are talking about here as the church, now Jesus could have had it in mind for later, but what we're talking about here as church is not the same as what the church would become in Acts and following. The church, the name church, comes from a word that just means a group called out, almost a social group. They had all kinds of churches. In our day and age, like Rotary, Kiwanis, um, teachers' associations, those were churches. Now, that just meant they were called out of society because of a common purpose. So when Jesus is sitting around and talking about church, they're thinking this little group that we've got. They're not thinking a universal movement of a billion people. Okay. Now, as we get into Acts, it begins to take that understanding on. And Jesus, in his foreknowledge, knew what he was talking about. But Peter wouldn't have thought, oh, you're talking about a worldwide movement. He would have thought, you're talking about this little group here. And so I don't see any way that Peter would have thought, Jesus is going to build our little group on me. That's not who he's going to build it on, is it? Built on Jesus and his confession. And that Jesus is the Son of God. All right? Does that answer it, Miss Teresa? I think well, I think that that I I think the question is following that he talks about the keys of the kingdom and wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Two things I do think that that came to fruition in his first sermon at Pentecost, Peter's, but I also think that that's intended for the church, and that we have more power than we know. And one of the things I hope you're seeing as you read this is spiritual warfare language, which I think this is throughout, that it's a part of what we're involved in, this spiritual thing that's going on as well. Ms. Dottie, yes. 
Yeah, we talked the secret Messiah thing again. Miss Betty asked about why he said that that he told him not to to tell anybody. Um, Jesus, the thing that you see here is that Jesus is waiting for the right time to reveal who he is. Because once he he knows that once he reveals who he is, things are set into motion that are going to be in motion, and it wasn't the right time yet. People would get the wrong motives. You know, he feeds the 5,000. They want to make him king. Um, well, to make him king, they got to have an uprising. they got to throw over the government. they got to have a military conflict. It wasn't like they could just march Jesus in the middle of Jerusalem and go, here's our king. You know, Romans were there. And Jesus, that's not what he's looking for. So it was just... And Mark especially will talk a lot about this messianic secret. Don't let everybody know who I am yet. Okay. Miss Dottie. Like Miss Dottie said, Peter, Jesus looks at him and says, it's not the flesh and blood that's revealed anything to you. It's not physical stuff. It's a spiritual understanding. All right? Yeah, the weeds in the field, that kingdom mentality, um, the understanding. I like it when Jesus tells us what the parables mean because it limits preachers on making up stuff, Right? And he tells them straightforward that they're going to grow up together and you're going to have some good and some bad. and you got to make sure you're on the right side. Ms. Cologne, yes, ma'am. Which one, where is it? The, the Canaanite woman there. We, uh, Matthew 15, 23rd of January, is that what you said? Okay. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. This is where I believe, and the question is, what does this parable mean? What does this whole deal mean? Okay, This Canaanite woman comes from the vicinity to him, crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter's suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying. And Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt, Lord, help me. He replied, it's not right to take children's bread and give it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. I believe. I believe. That sounds like I'm getting ready to preach, doesn't it? I believe that Jesus is testing the disciples. So we did this on Sunday night. Anybody remember that? You don't, you don't have to hurt my feelings. Ben in the back. I see that hand. Uh we did this on Sunday night where we did tough sayings of Jesus because it seems like he's degrading this woman. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, well, you've got good faith. Well, I'll heal you. I think he's testing his disciples because he had already told them that, hey, I'm, I'm carrying the message broader. I mean, we, we can see that he's going to have a broader message. And so he says kind of they come to him. They, he doesn't answer her with, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. He answers the disciples. And he's testing to see if the disciples go, that's, that's not what you've told us, Jesus. Instead of, that's right, amen. You're just here for Israel. We're not here for these Canaanite dogs. That's what they called Canaanites were dogs. Okay. So then Jesus says to her, he's testing her, does she really believe in me or is she just coming looking for a handout? And he says, it's not right to take the children's bread, the Israelites' bread, and toss it out to the dogs. And she comes up with this very clever answer. Well, even the dogs get the crumbles. All I need is a little bit. If you look, that's interesting. In all of the Gospels, Jesus commends very few people for their great faith. Anybody think of somebody else he commends? 
and centurion soldier, right? So he, he, a Canaanite woman and a centurion soldier, both are Gentiles. And this builds the argument Jesus will have for, listen, my own people have rejected me, but the Gentiles are believers. I think it was a test, not Jesus actually... He meant what he said, but it wasn't like he was being degrading just to degrade. It was a test that was happening. That's what I think it means. Although I will admit this, that's one of the most confusing passages of Scripture to me. Yeah, that's, you know, that was the, that's what they called them. They, and dogs were not, you know, I know it's, it's respect your pet week on Facebook, right? Honor your pet week on Facebook. Everybody get out there and honor them. Uh, but they, dogs were not honored pets. They were scavengers and the scum of the earth. Okay? When we, that's still the case in most countries of the world. Right? When we go to Brazil, there are dogs running the streets. Now, they'll help them, but nobody wants to bring those dogs into their house because they're scavengers. All right? Miss Carolyn, you had... Yeah, he's... You know, it's, it's just it happens. Um... It's, they call it the long-distance healing, right? I never liked that term, the fact that Jesus spoke and they were healed. I never liked that term because I grew up listening to Casey Kasem on America's Top 40, and I always do that long-distance dedication, and so that would be in my mind. But it's, it's distance healing, right? It's, uh, he spoke, and it happened. He didn't have to touch. He didn't have to be there. It was just there. So y'all never expected Casey Kasem to be brought up tonight, right? Yeah, God still can do that today. I'll be back to you in a minute, Ben. I got Cliff over here. He's had his hand up. Right. And here's, Cliff made a good point. This was a very teachable moment for the disciples. They did not respond in faith. Their thing was, get her out of here. Jesus, she's bothering us. Tell her to go. You're crying all the time. I mean, she's a Gentile. She's a dog. Let's, we ain't got time to deal with this. And so Jesus kind of plays into that. You're right. We don't have time to deal with this. That's right, Jesus. We ain't got time. Send her away. Lady, what? You're a dog. What? Well, but even, oh, okay. God, and then when he starts to heal, they're like, uh-oh. We missed it. One of my favorite kind of versions of the Bible, which isn't a real, I mean, don't read it for study. Don't read it for clarity. But it's just interesting. Is it something called the Cotton Patch Gospel? It was written during the height of the Civil uh, rights disturbances in America, and it imagines Jesus being born in Georgia uh, in a bread box. Uh, but they would couch all of these decisions as if in the 1950s Jesus was a, a white man walking through with some white disciples, and this African American woman comes up, and they're like, "We don't have to deal with that." And so, imagine when you're thinking about that, that's the kind of animosity. That was there, um, you know. One of those things. One of those things that happened with with Eli. And I am going to speak on just for a second because it relates to this passage. Eli came home from school the other day, just um, amazed that there was a time when people of a different color couldn't sit in the same places that we could. You know, they had been talking about Martin Luther King week, and he just, you know, they've been talking about. You know, Rosa Parks and the bus and all of that. And he just, well, why did that happen, Daddy? 
it's just interesting coming out of the mouth of a babe how it reminds you that we live in a culture that that was very much like this culture in, in a lot of ways. And he just was amazed. And he said that, and then he said this. He's got a couple of little African-American boys that are good friends of his in his class. And he said, Daddy, they wouldn't have even been able to be in my class. Just as if that was the farthest thing from his mind. And I thought about the innocence of children, which Jesus talks about in these passages we read. Basically, he, was, he, he says that this is part of what my job is here, is to take this gospel to people that you don't want it to be taken to. The question we have to ask ourselves sometimes is, who are those people that we don't want to take the gospel to today? Right? Ben. Right. Right. We talked about, you know, last week he sent them out and he said, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. But what I mentioned last week, Ben, was in that instance of sending them out, I think he was trying to give them the, the easy start. And so, but he wanted them to make sure that they realized that's not the end goal. Is not These lost sheep of Israel are important. They're still important. But it's not the end goal. The end goal is all the nations. And so in their mind, they would have flashed back to, that's right, that's what you told us. Yeah, a lot of them were, right? But we see as the gospel move on, more and more God-fearers, people that weren't Jewish that begin to come to the fringes and say, who is this man? In fact, um, do you notice there's two big feedings in what we read? Feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. There's some real differences there, even though they seem very similar. But one of the major differences is that the 5,000 were mostly Jews in Galilee, the 4,000 were mostly Gentiles probably in Decapolis, which is the center of the ten cities. Decapolis is ten cities. Um, so you see his influence spreading out, which the interesting thing is when does that happen, the feeding of the 4,000 with all the Gentiles? Right after this story, right, in Matthew's Gospel. Right after the Canaanite woman, then we feed the 4,000 Gentiles, Right? Carol, you had a question. You had your hand up. They're surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Further evidence that God uses people that don't always get it. The disciples throughout this, you're going to see this throughout. Jesus will tell them the same thing over and over again. You know, when I'm in seminary, you know what they told me? They said, if you want your congregation to know something, you've got to tell them seven times. Say, yeah, 70 times seven, right? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, they, and they didn't have it to study necessarily. And you have to realize that Jesus had, now think about this, Jesus had about three years to pour everything he wanted to pour into these 12 guys. Now, Jesus has been around for eternity. He has more knowledge than we will ever have. Now, I'm not saying that when he was born he had all that imprinted, but as he grew to know his father, as he grew to know the scriptures, he knew more and more, and it's almost like a fire hydrant he's throwing at him. And some of what you have here is this isn't everything he told them. I mean, you know, the gospel writers are saying, this isn't it. If I tried to write it down, it would be, but when they got on the other side of the cross and the grave and the resurrection, they were like, wait a minute. How many times did he tell us? You know, I can imagine them sitting around Matthew going, all right, let's count up. How many times did he tell us he was going to raise from the grave? All right? You remember that time? Yeah, I remember that and this, and then they just share it. So we give them a hard time, and they deserve a hard time in some ways because they don't get it, all right? Yeah, they were 12 rednecks, 
except for Matthew, who was a little cultured. But, I mean, you know that because when we talk about Acts, they get there and they start talking, and they say, y'all are from Galilee because I can tell it in your accent. Yeah, I mean, the que- and Joyce made a good point. Do, would we have acted any differently than them being around? I mean, it's amazing. All right, we've got about seven minutes that we've gone over. Um, can you say that till next week, Miss Shirley? Okay. Let me mention one thing in Psalm and Proverbs that we'll see. Psalm 22 is a very important psalm. And here's the reason. In the New Testament time, when they wanted to refer to a psalm, they never said Psalm 22 because they didn't have them numbered. Okay? They referred to it by the title, which was the first line. What is Psalm 22's first line? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The understanding by most people is that when Jesus said that line, he was pointing to that entire psalm. Kind of like, excuse me, today you might say, boy, that song, whatever, Lily of the Valley, speaks to me at this moment. What Jesus was crying out from the cross wasn't just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was that whole song. And it's about him and the rejection. And he's saying, this is coming to pass. And so it was a declaration in that moment. Now, people get theological about did God turn his back. All that is, we'll get there when we get there, okay, because we still got to read that. But just go back and read Psalm 22. It won't take you long. It was over two days, actually, the last two days we read. Um, and you you, don't, you know Psalm 23 we're reading tomorrow, right? You all know that one. Uh, but go back and read Psalm 22 and think about the cross. Miss Joan. Yeah, that would have been somebody. Yeah, that would have been somebody leading the, the musician. Miss Joan asked. That would have been somebody leading the congregation. Whoever that would have been at that time, the, the people. All right. Hang in there. You're doing a good job. We're through Genesis. We're into Exodus. Um, you might want to, as part of fun thing, read. Let me emphasize this. Read this story first, and then go back and watch Ten Commandments, or Prince of Egypt, or any of those, and go. They didn't put that in there. I can't imagine why they didn't put the Zipporah story in there, right? Uh, but you might go back and just reference that. All right? Yeah. We're done. Thank you all. Next week, same time, same place.